If you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8 is where we are heading as we continue our way through Daniel this fall. Uh, And um, it is still fall, but it's been feeling a bit more like winter uh, the last few days. But it has been a a beautiful weekend, hasn't it? Uh, I I don't know about the rest of you, but I managed to have a really lovely day yesterday. Uh, It started off uh, with breakfast at Black Bear Diner with some of the men's group uh, here. Uh, We shared in cups of coffee, tasty food, good conversation. One of the things we talked about uh, was visiting bookstores and and things like that. And I I mentioned this wonderful used bookstore that I've been to once before down in Tacoma. Uh, It's just this tiny little white building that you would never suspect of being much. And when you go in, I mean, I think they, I don't remember, they say they have like half a mile of books or something. Um, I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, and so we were talking about all of that. Um, and so after breakfast, we all headed out and um, I went back to my car. And initially I, I was planning on just heading back home. Uh, but Caitlin is out of town this weekend on a writer's retreat. And uh, I was kind of just on my own and I thought, well, what adventures might the day hold? And it's too, it just seems too beautiful to just go back home. So I decided I'll go to a park, uh, and just kind of spend some time outside. And I ended up heading down toward Point Defiance in Tacoma. And as I was on my way there, I thought, what if I stop at that bookstore we were just talking about? So I did. Uh, and I went to the bookstore. I was probably in the bookstore for like an hour. Um, just perusing, going through things. It was wonderful. Ended up coming out with a few books and made my way to Point Defiance, and it was just a lovely day. I uh, walked through the forests there, got to look out at the water, um, and then sit by this this pond, the the duck pond there, watching a, a, a big heron kind of staring down at its reflection, maybe trying to catch some food. Uh, and reading a little bit from one of those books I just picked up. I mean, it was just a beautiful, beautiful day. Sometimes we have days like this, marked by beauty and simplicity and and peace. And, And on days like this, it's very easy to sing a song like, he's always been faithful to me, right? But other times we have different kinds of days. Other times we have days that are marked by noise, by chaos, by all kinds of complicated, bad news. Days where all that we hear about are intensifying wars across the world, whether in Afghanistan, Ukraine, or Israel and Gaza. There are days where all that we do is hear about earthquakes and floods, tsunamis and wildfires. There are days where we hear about upticks in virus spread and mass violence, when all we hear is the noise of arguing politicians. I mean, all of that is on top of the regular pressures we often face as we go about our work, the conflicts that we experience in relationships, the anxieties and insecurities we carry in our own hearts. On days like these, 
I wonder, can we still sing, God has been faithful. He will be again. Can we? It's much more difficult to do that. And yet, global chaos seems to be in far more ample supply lately than simple beauty. And it's overwhelming to live in and constantly be aware of a world of warring nations, chaos, and suffering. How are we to think about all of these things that are going on all around us? What are we to do? Well, as we continue through the second half of the book of Daniel, in chapter 8, Daniel has another big apocalyptic kind of vision. And to be honest, it doesn't look all that different than some of these recent newsreels and headlines. So let's read together and see what there is to hear. Uh, as in other weeks, can I maybe get one or two people to, to help in reading? Bill, you're always there. and Bill and Linda are the faithful, faithful ones. Yeah, would love to read with you guys. So Daniel chapter 8. I'll bring the mic over and let's hear. One of you want to get us started? All right. Daniel chapter 8. Okay, in the third year of King Baltasar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the, in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulea Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing be, besides the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it, did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and it charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking. <clears throat> 
And another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from Eulea calling Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerning the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. The large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He'll become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause outstanding, excuse me, he will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true. But seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. And then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thank you guys again for reading with me. As we continue, let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for these colorful visions and stories that invite us to consider you and your everlasting kingdom. God, as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, would you sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so here we have yet another of Daniel's apocalyptic visions. And although it is a little more tame than last week, right? Last week we saw four mutant carnivorous beasts 
uh, a winged lion, an upright bear, a four-headed flying leopard, followed by a final indescribable beast covered in horns that was worse than all the others. Chapter 7's vision, on the other hand, um, or, or sorry, chapter 7's vision last week had a, a kind of cosmic, timeless scale about it. But this vision in chapter 8 is a little more down to earth, right? Rather than four mutant predators, we have two raging livestock, uh, a ram and a goat, right? Another difference is that in chapter 7, all the beasts remained anonymous. Uh, they were simply described as four kings that will arise from the earth. Whereas here, in chapter 8, the animals are identified as specific kingdoms. In verses 20 and 21, it says, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Medea and Persia. And then the shaggy goat is the king of Greece. Right, And so we kind of are getting some, we're mapping these on to some specific things that are, are happening or going to happen. Now, on the one hand, literature like this feels strange, confusing, jarring, and otherworldly. But, but really, it's actually quite common, even today. It's still quite common. One of the commentaries I read this week described the two chapters this way. Uh, using different art forms. It said chapter 7 is like an impressionist painting open to several interpretations, right? You just have these strange figures of beasts and such. But chapter 8 is more like a political cartoon with the names incorporated in to make sure the reader understands it. Do you guys remember learning about political cartoons? Do you ever have that in school or something like that? Um, cartoonish images that are meant to make a point about political realities in the world. And it is not uncommon for these kinds of cartoons to employ animals as a way of depicting different figures. Uh, groups of people or nations, right? In the U.S., we might see political cartoons of donkeys and elephants fighting each other, right? Because that's pretty common in our political world uh, for that sort of thing. Um, but, but on a global level, you can see this depicted as well with different countries. For example, here's an old political cartoon from the early 20th century depicting the Boxer War, or Boxer Rebellion War, in which several countries fought in China to defend various kinds of international influence. Uh, you probably can't see all the detail on the screen there, but if you look really closely, you'll see that each one of the animals uh, is wearing a sash or something like that with the country written on it. Uh, the bear is Russia. The lion is Britain. There's a leopard that's Japan, a wolf that's Italy, a rooster that's France. There's a bald eagle wearing a U.S. flag. There's a brown eagle with a sash that says Germany. There's a two-headed bird that says Austria. And all of these are fighting over a sleeping dragon with the word China written on it. Right? These kinds of political cartoons are pretty common 
uh, throughout history. So Daniel chapter 8 uh, might initially be depicted as something like this, right? We've got uh, a ram being overpowered by a big, bad goat. Uh, it's like Daniel has turned on the nightly news and in the form of a political cartoon, he's overwhelmed by nation warring against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Now, one of the important features of these animals in the visions is their horns, right? We have a lot of descriptions of different horns uh, here and there. Uh, We saw this back in chapter 7 as well. That fourth beast emerged, uh, and uh, it had the um, ten horns coming out of it. And then we have that here as well with the ram and the goat being described with different kinds of horns along the way. The fourth beast had ten horns, and then three were uprooted and replaced by a little horn with eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Uh, In this vision, in chapter 8, we start with a ram that has two horns, depicting the Medes and the Persians, charging in all directions. And then there comes a goat that first has one horn, and then four horns, and then another little horn that comes up and grows up among them. What's with all of these different horns, right? What's going on with all of this? Well, the image of a horn often is used to represent power and authority, and particularly to represent kings. And that's how they're described in the chapter. Chapter 8 doesn't give us specific names of kings for each horn, although when you look at history, it's not too difficult to kind of map on what we know to what is being described here in Daniel chapter 8. I will not bog us down with that this morning, uh, although we can talk about it next Sunday during the conversation hour if you want to. The point of all of this is that there are these nations warring against one another. That, you know, you've got Babylon, and then in comes like a charging ram, the Medes and the Persians, and then in comes like a sort of unicorn goat rampaging the empire of Greece. And on and on it goes, kingdom warring against kingdom. And all of this illustrates one of the main themes that we have been seeing throughout the book of Daniel. Though God created humanity in his image to rule the earth as his representatives, when rulers try to become more than human, by rebelling against God or oppressing others, they end up actually becoming less than human and more like wild beasts and bucking livestock. That's one thing that we've seen again and again throughout Daniel, uh, literally in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who himself became this animal-like creature after talking about and and puffing himself up. Um, And so that's what we see here. Whenever kingdoms try to become greater than they are meant to be, they ultimately become like wild animals. 
And one of the things that comes through loud and clear in all of these visions is that as long as these animal empires reign, people will suffer. As long as these animal empires reign, people will suffer. And specifically, God's people will suffer. In chapter 7, the fourth beast with the ten horns and the little horn that grew up wandered around devouring the earth, trampling it, crushing it, and specifically opposing God's holy people. And then here in chapter 8, when the small horn emerges from the goat, it grows toward the beautiful land, which is a way of referring to the promised land where God's people call home. And then verse 10 says that that little horn grew until it reached the host of heavens and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. So God's people are targeted, trampled on, and oppressed. Sometimes this happens by fallen kingdoms, Sometimes it happens by fallen forces of nature. and Sometimes it happens by fallen spiritual powers and principalities, as Paul will later describe them. But the message is clear. God's people are not exempt from suffering. God's people are not exempt from suffering. In fact, often being God's people means that we will be led closer to suffering rather than further from it. The idea that following God somehow leads to material comfort and peace is a lie that goes back to the time of Daniel and even before, and it persists through to today. Looking back, Then, just before and during the life of Daniel, we have the prophet Jeremiah living and and prophesying. And he warned the people of God that Babylon is coming. And when Babylon came, he sent a letter to the people in exile. Daniel was familiar with the letter that Jeremiah sent to the people in exile because he was one of them. And Daniel will refer to that letter uh, in chapter 9. We'll see next week. But during Jeremiah's day, there were false prophets going around preaching, peace, peace, everything's okay, everything is fine. And Jeremiah called them out, saying they're preaching peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're offering false security, they're offering short-lived comfort. And Jeremiah, on the other hand, was going around warning people about the coming invasion, that they would, in fact, end up in exile. Jeremiah was not popular, but he was right. The very same thing is true today. It's not a popular thing to tell people that suffering will come. It would be much nicer to hear that following God is a pathway to health and wealth. But it's simply not true. 
suffering as as much a part of the life of God's people as it is for everyone else. God's people are not exempt from suffering. We need only look to Jesus to see this, right? When Jesus, not merely a follower of God, but God himself coming in flesh, whenever Jesus came, he was not born in a comfortable palace, but in a barn among the animals. After Jesus was baptized, he did not live the rest of his life in comfort and security. Rather, he came up out of the water and was immediately led into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. And even after this period of fasting, you would think, okay, you know, you got the suffering out of your system. Right now it's on to easy times. No. He continued to live a very sparse life. Jesus himself described it. Foxes have dens. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. As his ministry grows, Jesus doesn't hire assistants and move into the C-suite to run things from, from there, right? Rather, Jesus insists the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And ultimately, this is what happens. Jesus does suffer. Jesus is rejected. And Jesus is killed. When God came, he was not exempt from suffering. Neither will God's people be if you follow him. That seems to be the point of Daniel's vision here in chapter 8. You're in Babylon. Things are bad. And hold on, because things are going to get worse. But that's not where the vision ends. Right? Towards the end of Daniel's initial vision, there is a character, a holy one, who asks the question, how long will this be? How long is this, is this all going to last? And the response to this question comes in verse 14. It'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. This is then reiterated again in verse 25 where it lists off all of these many atrocities of the evil king saying he will destroy many and take a stand against the prince of, uh, the prince of princes. But then it goes on to say, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Again, scholars debate the precise meaning and interpretation of 2,300 evenings and mornings, and again, we can talk about that another time. The point 
simply seems to be this. This reign of evil and this time of suffering will not go on forever. It's numbered, which means it will end. This time of suffering will come to an end. So the message of Daniel chapter 8 is this. Suffering will come upon God's people. But that suffering will not have the final word. Did you hear what Jesus said? The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed. But on the third day, he will be raised to new life. Evil kingdoms are real. And God's people will suffer. But only God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. All other kingdoms will come to an end. This image of horns that we're talking about, by the way, it's also used to declare this good news and hope that we have. Right? They can be used to depict evil rampaging kingdoms. But horns throughout Scripture also depict the hope of God's kingdom. In Psalm 18, David declares, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This hope of God's deliverance that is coming. In the same way, uh, Later on in, in the story, well, I guess earlier in the story, before David, uh, Hannah was praying, longing for a child, praying to God. And when God gives her a child, she sings this beautiful song of worship to God. That child is Samuel, who will eventually anoint King David. And when she goes to praise God, her song begins and ends like this. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. And then at the end, she says, it's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And finally, there's an, another set of these wonderful birth stories in the Gospel of Luke. Zechariah receives word that he and his wife will have a child, son, uh, John, John the Baptist. Uh, and once John the Baptist is born, Zechariah also begins singing to the Lord. And his song says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us 
in the house of his servant, David. You see, there are evil horns of evil kingdoms that rampage and destroy us, but our hope is that God will raise up a horn, a Messiah, an anointed one, who will reign in God's everlasting kingdom. And this is precisely what Jesus comes declaring. He is that horn. He is that one who comes to deliver us from evil. But he does not shy away from the fact that God's people will suffer. Although that suffering will not have the final word. As he approaches the cross, he speaks to his disciples. And in John 16, this is what he says to them and to us as well. He tells them, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn into joy. He tells them, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is good news. In the end, that fierce goat with its destructive horn will be destroyed. And God's kingdom will reign forever. In the meantime, how do we respond? What shall we do? Well, after all the convoluted images and overwhelming messages of Daniel's vision, I am very grateful for verse 27, where Daniel reflects, personally, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Any of you feel that way as you read Daniel 7 and 8? Yeah. If you feel overwhelmed and confused by these apocalyptic visions, you're not alone, right? I mean, we're just sitting here reading about them. Imagine being Daniel who experienced them firsthand, right? Worn out, exhausted, appalled, confused. And this very well may be how you feel as we go around today, aware of today's animal empires that continue waging war with each other and trampling upon the earth. Like Daniel, we cannot help but feel the weight of it. There can be something very overwhelming 
about the helplessness that we feel as we're inundated with all of this news. What can we do to make any difference? I mean, these are warring empires that we're talking about. What can I do? Right? It's okay for us to be appalled and confused, just like Daniel was. But that's not all that Daniel was. That's not all that Daniel did. Because right in between this exhaustion and the confusion, there's one more statement in verse 27. He says, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and I went about the king's business. Daniel got up and he went to work. He went to work the next day. And he did it again, and again, and again. Despite these overwhelming visions, Daniel did not become paralyzed with fear. He didn't become obsessed with rage. Rather, Daniel continued faithfully living his daily life by serving the people around him. And this is how we are to respond as well. I want you to hear this. When you feel overwhelmed by the events of a chaotic world, get up the next day, go to work, and find someone to love. Just find someone to love. Don't dismiss or deny the pain of the world, but don't let it define you either. Get up. Let's go out. And let's be about our king's business. Because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom.